Uh, thank you, Gerald, and the accompaniment, of course, as well, uh, with Darla. What a blessing. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And uh, as we've mentioned, we're going to have uh, a slightly modified schedule next week because of the special music and, and such. So I will not return to the Gospel of Luke next Sunday. We'll take a break from that. Uh, then on December 29th, Pastor Weiler is going to um, be preaching as Rita and I are going to break away for a weekend. And uh, then in 2020, as we come back to Luke again in 2020, our first message will be the story of the rich young ruler as we t- return to Luke chapter 18 in verse 18. But today we're in verse 15. Luke chapter 18 and verse 15, where we find this small Uh, but very significant passage about children. I think most of us here agree that that we have an inherent, you know, God-given affection and concern for the little ones, especially uh, the most vulnerable of society. And whether that is expressed, that concern is expressed towards the elderly in general, or or to the homeless, or to uh, widows, children without a home, whatever it may be, a healthy society strives to defend those who who can't take care of themselves, the most vulnerable of society. And this principle, it, it couldn't be any more true than it is of little children, small children, parents, both mothers and fathers. They're very concerned. They're very protective of their children. Uh, mothers, as you know, uh, as well, some of us know, They have a very tight bond to their new babies. Uh, They dream about what their children will be when they grow up. They watch them grow. Uh, They see them graduate and and do marvelous things. They they dream about what they might do with that spare bedroom once they finally move on, right? No, as Christians, we're especially concerned about children, uh, also their spiritual condition. I know if you're a parent here with young children who have not yet exercised faith in Christ, you're concerned about uh, their spiritual condition. You, you want to see them saved, right? You know, we want the little ones that, that we know to enter heaven along with us. Uh, this is, by the way, probably one contributing factor, uh, a main contributing factor. Not the only contributing factor, but a main one. Uh, though there are many, that has facilitated the er erroneous practice of infant baptism. You see it uh, very broadly throughout culture and and throughout history, uh, a practice that is nowhere prescribed in the Bible, by the way. Uh, Many denominations have incorrectly taught that infant baptism is salvific, that the child is saved through that. Uh, so, uh, So with so many holding to that misconception, you know, I understand why infant baptism is such an easy sell in some churches. I, I understand that. Parents want a sense of assurance in case something tragic happens, something unforeseen. Uh, if their young child suddenly dies, uh, they want some sense of assurance that they will be reunited again with them in heaven. And, and if there is one gain, if I may call it that, one gain to this erroneous deference to infant baptism, it may be how it validates, or, or in how it validates, that all humanity is inherently sinful. 
Scripture is very clear. Uh, We don't act sinful. We are born sinful. In Psalm 51, verse 5, David says this of himself. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. He is speaking of himself there. And in sin, my mother conceived me. He said, I was a sinner from the beginning. We're not born morally neutral as society will declare and and then just learn uh, to do good or learn to do evil. Scripture says we are bent towards evil. Bent towards sin. Scripture says in Ephesians 2 verse 3 that we are all by nature children of wrath. That's our nature, our sinful nature. We're born that way. Uh, and parents, parents recognize that from an early age. I mean, right away, that's why they're so concerned. Those hearts behind those cute little dimples, we know. Jeremiah tells us they are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Right, Gideon? Just nod yes. And there's, there's a mystery. A mystery in the virgin birth. We sang about it earlier. Perfect uh, song for this, uh, for this Sunday. The virgin birth of Christ. It's a mystery. It's not crystal clear to us, but we know enough. And it remains essential to our faith and doctrine. Christ, the eternal Son of God, through whom, by the way, the whole world was created. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he was born of the Virgin Mary. Now, this, this union of divinity and humanity is unique in Christ. And, and in a mystery, a mystery that, uh, that theologians refer to as a hypostatic union, in, in this ministry of God and man, our eternal God became fully man. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, Right? That's Colossians 2, verse 9. Yet being truly a man and truly God, Jesus Christ throughout his entire life, he he never sinned. Never sinned. And because of this, Jesus was uniquely, uniquely qualified in himself to offer himself as a blood sacrifice for the sins of the rest of us all who have sinned. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is one reason that we celebrate uh, the birth of our Savior every every year, again and again. He is so unique to be humbled, to be born in a manger, to to save us from our sins. Uh, So it baffles me. You know how some can profess that the virgin birth is unimportant somehow uh, because it is this very incarnation, God becoming flesh, that clearly distinguishes the baby Jesus from every other baby that has ever been born. You know, if Jesus were not conceived by the Holy Spirit, if he were not, not only a scripture a liar, he too was born in sin. There's a heresy that started, well, almost from the very beginning, very early in Christianity, stating that Jesus was born human and became God later on at some point. It's a a position sometimes referred to as adoptionism, that God adopted him as his son. Um, That rejects the eternality of Christ and poses all kinds of problems in theology, uh, problems that, 
that are present very clearly in Mormonism and in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, it's an Arianism type heresy that it's been condemned throughout the history of the church. Christ was born of a virgin conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we celebrate Christmas because Jesus is like no other baby. Like no other baby. He was not born in sin. Uh, yet, Scripture assures that all the rest of us have been. Um, in one of the greatest admissions of the sinfulness of man and of babies, uh, we see the historic practice of infant baptism. People think, you know, we know they're born sinners. We've got, we got to patch this up somehow. We've got to find a way until a baby matures enough uh, to enough human awareness to take responsibility for him or herself. Uh, maybe at that point then we'll, I know what we'll do. We'll get together and we'll put them through some classes and uh, we'll, we'll come up with another sacrament, Christian Confirmation. And we'll put them through those classes and we'll cover them that way as well. And while this acknowledges that children are born in sin, uh, we cannot condone what is clearly man-made patchwork of traditions in order to cover that infant sin. The sin problem, uh, that prescription is never prescribed in the Bible. You can't, you can't find it uh, in there in the Word of God. So then the question becomes obvious. It becomes obvious. Can we enjoy a, a blessed assurance about the fate concerning our children without relying on rituals and traditions involving parents and godparents and other things? Because this is the reason most people baptize their infants. They want some sort of blessed assurance because they're worried about whether or not the kingdom of God is for children. I'm convinced this is not far removed from the concerns of parents in the audience that Luke is writing about. That we see in Luke chapter 18. We see the parents bringing their children to Jesus. They're concerned about the eternal destinies of their children. You know, the mortality rate even was quite higher back then. um, Considerably higher in that day. And, And the common question would be, What is the destiny of my child? What is the destiny of my child? Um, If you were to ask the Pharisees in their tradition, the majority opinion was that those children had not yet produced enough good works to offset their sin nature in order to enter the kingdom of God. That was the the common belief at that time. Um, The Pharisees, the theology of the Pharisees would completely contradict what Jesus is showing us here. Um, When you look, we'll discuss a little later about the grace of God as it's displayed in children. But if you go into Luke chapter 1, we studied that, well, a couple of years ago, right? It's been a long time. But you look at John the Baptist, who was, it was announced to his parents that they were going to have a child in their own old age, right? And it says there, Luke chapter 1, somewhere around verse 15, 16, that Zechariah is told that the son 
His Son will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in the womb. Now think about that for a second. Filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in the womb. Hadn't done anything. You know, free will theology has a big problem with that. Try to explain that one. Is God sovereign and able to save, or are we sovereign and he's just waiting around for somebody to get saved? It's a big contrast. Um, You might have already noticed that Luke places this occasion that we're reading about next in line after encouraging us to pray for children or, or for Christ's return and judgment. He's just asked us to do that. Uh, by comparison, Matthew chapter 19 and Mark 10, where we see this same occurrence, they both place Jesus embracing the children immediately after he teaches about the family. Notably about the sanctity of marriage in those contexts. And the language in Matthew and Mark seem to indicate that it's more likely that their record is the immediate context. The, the, the immediate sequence in order. Meanwhile, it appears to me that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to position this text immediately after Christ's prolonged word. A prolonged word. We've been studying it for a while. Prolonged word of warning about His return and imminent judgment. I think it's probably in chronological order, but there's probably a gap of time right before we start uh, uh, in verse 15. It seems to be inserted here for a couple reasons. A couple reasons. Number one, the reader of Luke has just been warned to anticipate, even welcome, not just anticipate, but even welcome a sudden return of Christ where he will severely judge unbelievers. In fact, in verses 1 through 8, Christ even provokes persecuted believers to imprecatory prayer, you know, inviting God to bring swift justice to the earth. You know, have you ever thought to yourself, you know, how, how could a Christian, how could a believing Christian pray in that way if they have small children or infants who have not and still may not exercise faith in Christ for a number of years. How how could parents pray for such a thing? How do you pray for Christ to return even while your children still do not believe and their children are not ready? That's an important question. That's an important question. That, I believe, is reason number one that Luke inserts this here immediately following this discussion about judgment. Luke's going to answer that question. Number two, having just told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus has assured that human achievement can never justify sinful man. Ever. That was last week we studied that. Only the repentant publican who who beat his chest having no confidence at all in the flesh or human achievement, only he walked away from the temple justified. For in verse 14, Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The the kingdom of God belongs to those who are truly humble at heart and those who have no confidence at all in the flesh or in their human achievement. Uh, So we learned last Sunday that God shows grace to the spiritually humble. Who then would serve as an ideal illustration of sinful humanity who needs redeeming, by the way, but has no hope in human achievement, has zero confidence in impressing God by the flesh. It's little children. Let me rephrase each of these in a form of a question. Number one, how can Christian parents pray with with passion for Jesus to, to expedite his return, to execute justice on the earth, just as Scripture commands us to, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, right? Without hesitation, due to the unbelieving souls of their children. How do they do that? That's question number one. Number two, who in our midst, think about this for a second, who in our midst serves as the purest example of a recipient of unmerited, unearned, undeserved grace a salvation that is not of themselves not the result of works that that any of them would boast before god for anything boasting in their own works folks we have an example right here for us today i'm going to ask pastor weiler to stand up and and hold him high folks what we have here before us is a sinner Unable to boast before God in anything that they have done. Little Gideon there isn't going to boast in his own human achievement. He's one who is completely dependent upon God as his benefactor to dispense unmerited free grace. Do you know what Jesus says? Jesus says in our passage, The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Amen? Thank you, Gideon. Let's read Luke 18, just briefly, beginning in verse 15. This is a parallel account to what we read earlier during the Scripture reading in Mark 10. And we are told they, meaning parents, were bringing even their babies to Jesus so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. You know, I I love the account as it was recorded in, in Mark earlier um, Mark chapter 10, it adds a tiny bit more information than does Luke re- uh, recording that when the disciples tried to prevent the children from coming to Jesus, Jesus became indignant with them. Indignant. The Greek word for indignant is somewhat, sometimes used uh, of someone who is exceedingly angry after witnessing something that is unjust. The word can mean 
insanely angry, to be irate, even wrathful. Regardless, what we do know here with Jesus and the disciples is he was upset. He was angry with his disciples. He was furious with them for what they had done. Yet by the end of the confrontation, by the end of the dialogue at that, at that time, Mark describes Jesus as taking the children into his arms and he began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Why? Jesus says because the kingdom belongs to children such as these. Jesus' reference, by the way, to children such as these, um, it's it's a categorical reference to all children. He's He's not saying there the kingdom belongs to these children as if he's giving a special blessing to those immediate children right there next to him. No, it's a general blessing. The kingdom belongs to children such as these, meaning all children such as these. So the question naturally arises, well, such as what? Such as what? Children such as what? Well, Luke chapter, uh, verse 15 says they were bringing to him babies. Babies. Literally, the word means a suckler. One who suckles at their mother's breast. And then in verse 16, Jesus categorically, he broadens the scale as he declares, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. There, Jesus invokes a different word for children, um, broadly referring to all children. So, so Luke indicates that Jesus' blessing includes children from the age of new, new birth and nursing all the way through young children, with no definite end to that age, through their youth. And you know you know what these children emblemize. We've, we just held up Gideon for you. They, they are those who have no ability whatsoever to boast in themselves. None. No achievement. No great knowledge. No degrees hanging on the wall. Nothing to impress anyone with. They have no moral aptitude to understand. Or at least they don't fully understand right from wrong. They're not unlike, they're not much unlike those children in ancient Nineveh. That was a massive you know, pagan city that Jonah describes as being a three days walk to go through it. Very, very large city. Uh, archaeological measurements have suggested that Nineveh proper, I mean, just Nineveh itself, and then some adjoined communities surrounding Nineveh uh, could, have bo- uh, could have boasted a population of, of 600,000. Perhaps even a million, depending upon how far out you go. If you think of other judgments, not just that on Nineveh where God spared them because they, they repented, but you think of Sodom. When that was destroyed, there were, there were surrounding cities that got cut up in that. Gomorrah and many other listed cities uh, that weren't even there in, in Sodom proper. So, so when the, the judgment of God came, it was a very large area in that occasion. And, and when Jonah, who wanted, wanted God to decimate Nineveh, uh, when he expressed his displeasure at God's mercy, God rebuked him, saying, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left? 
Now, not knowing the difference from your right hand and your left, that indicates a threshold of innocence that God nowhere else in the Bible assigns to sinful adults. Ones who he repeatedly judged. It didn't describe Sodom. It didn't describe Egypt or the Amalekites or the Canaanites. Not knowing their right hand from their left is never offered in the Bible elsewhere as an excuse for sinful adults to get by with stuff. So 120,000 would have to refer to that portion of Nineveh who were children. Who were children. And Jonah reveals pretty much the same thing that Christ reveals to us in Luke chapter 18. God has a unique concern for them. A very unique concern for them. Ezekiel uh, recounts, this would be in Ezekiel chapter 16. He recounts some of the just abominable idolatries in Israel. Some of the worst that occurred in Israel. In, Luke, or in Ezekiel 16, excuse me, note that like pagan Nineveh, these two are not children of believers. Far from it. Far removed from believers. Not even close. Ezekiel describes the behavior of parents who are participating in demonic rituals. Demonic rituals. And in verse 20, the Lord declares, Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had born to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries such a small matter? Meaning, wasn't your sexual immorality bad enough? But, or do you have to sacrifice your children to Molech by, by murdering them? So were your harlotries so small a matter, you slaughtered, says the Lord, my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. God indicates... You murdered my children. Folks, children belong to God. And Jesus says, the kingdom belongs to them. And I don't have time to exhaust all the passages that speak about this today, uh, this this very topic, but but I am going to refer you to a really good message. Um, It is given by John MacArthur. He's not a perfect man, but he's very good. Uh, he's a very good preacher in which, with great skill, he synthesizes Old and New Testament passages about this topic. Um, God's unique concern for children, declaring that they are innocent and they are mine, says the Lord. Um, that message is online at Grace to You. You can search for it. Uh, it's on this passage, Luke, Luke 18. You can find it there. It's titled, The Children in the Kingdom of God, Part 2. Part 1 is good. You know with MacArthur, he gets long-winded. He repeats a lot of stuff in the second parts. The second part of the sermon is really where the rubber meets the road. And like many, many of you here, perhaps many of you here, I've struggled over the years. I've struggled over the years really landing hard on on the eternal destiny of fallen and sinful children. 
knowing full well that sprinkling water on their heads is not the prescription that God provides. But I don't have a problem landing anymore. I'm confident children are saved. I'm confident of that. Um, I, I have come to this conviction for, for a, because of a number of passages in the Bible. It's not only because King David had said about his child that has just perished, the infant son, that he can't come to me, but I will go to him. That's, that's just one small part of the passages that weave together for this. Uh, David said, I will go see him beyond the grave in Sheol. Uh, and uniting David's words to those of of Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18 where we are now, uniting David with Jesus, I'm completely satisfied. Completely satisfied now. I've, I've, I've come to this, 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 this understanding that this passage means exactly what Jesus said. The kingdom of God belongs to children such as these. I'm convinced of it. Um, surely children are sinful. They are sinful. But they don't know their right hand from their left. They can't discern or understand the gospel on their own. They're in that sense innocent. And it's my full conviction that Scripture broadly reveals a God who who declares a divine level of protection around all Children, he has placed them around children, those who are too young to fully comprehend their sin. But under his providential care, the consequences of those, that sin uh, that they don't even understand is under grace. It's under grace. And yes, I, I also believe there will be another message for another time. I also believe, personally, this uh, expands to those who are mentally handicapped. I do. Uh, no matter what their age is. The question is, is there an age of accountability? This isn't in our doctrinal statement at church. So I'll give you what I believe. Uh, You'll have to determine what you believe. Is there an age of accountability? I would say yes. What is the age? I don't know. I, I don't know. That, that point of maturity may be different for every individual child or person who is mentally handicapped. I don't know. What's our responsibility? This is what we, we do need to know. Our responsibility is to prepare the children for that age. That they will be ready. That's what we do with Sunday school and, and church. We prepare the children for that age and for meeting Jesus. I realize there are people who disagree with an age of accountability. Uh, if you're uncertain or, or unconvinced either way, I truly would encourage you to, to listen to that message from MacArthur and, and discern on your own. If you're someone here who needs help finding that, I would gladly help you find that message. If you aren't real tech savvy, it's an important message. It's very comforting. Very comforting. Because, folks, there are so many in our midst... So many parents in our midst who have lost children, lost them due to miscarriages, to accidents, disease, perhaps even abortion. It's possible that even someone here laments that they previously advised another to have an abortion. Uh, Perhaps some here have even participated in the acts. Um, And what you need to know, what you need to know is that those children 
those babies who are precious to God, they're safe in the arms of Jesus. We need to know that. You need to know that. They're resting comfortably in the presence of Christ because the kingdom belongs to children. And I have not come to this conclusion, you know, for expedience, to make people feel better. I really haven't. Uh, Even though the grace of God and forgiveness that we offer each week to every person who is able to understand is is hopefully there to make you feel better. (laughs) Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm honestly convinced this is what the totality of Scripture assures. Um, I don't know how else a person could explain away the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 18. Um, I realize that some might protest this assertion. And I'll, and I'll share why. Some might protest this assertion because it could excuse um, the horrific act of abortion. It could excuse it. In fact, there are denominations out there that are using it as an excuse, proclaiming that it is a merciful act. Wouldn't it be more merciful, they say, for those children to enter heaven before reaching the age of accountability, after which it would become possible to reject Christ? Is it not then merciful in a sense? Let me be perfectly clear. Let me be perfectly clear. There is nothing merciful about murdering a child. Nothing merciful. In Ezekiel, we saw earlier that God squarely condemns it. Squarely condemns it. And since Christ the Son and God the Father both declare that these children belong to me, they are my very own children, what do you think is the penalty? What is it going to be for those who've destroyed the lives of God's children. God will take care of His children. What we need to be concerned about is the destiny, the eternal destiny of everyone who has participated in their destruction. We need to be concerned about them. There's nothing merciful about allowing people to participate in such an offense. And since God reveals clearly His love for these little ones, what do you think is going to be the penalty for those people who have participated in destroying them if they don't know Christ? Those who sexually abuse children, those who physically neglect children, those who contribute to their slaughter, as Ezekiel says, the ultimate judgment for these will not be merciful. In no way, then, can that act be considered Merciful. Folks, we have got to warn everybody. That's what the church does. That's what the church does. We need to warn every donor to Planned Parenthood. We we need to warn every doctor who has participated in, in such an act. We need to warn anyone who has in some way contributed to enabling a system of uh, of abuse of God's children. We we need to Warn them that that those children who have perished are safe in the arms of Jesus. But those who commit such atrocities are surely not. If you've participated 
in or endorse any such behaviors towards children such as these, you know, if you have not yet repented, you must. Please, you must. Christ offers you forgiveness just as he's offered me forgiveness for my sins. You must repent. You must trust in Christ. You will receive a full pardon, a full pardon for whatever you have done, uh, such sins. Um, you know your right hand from your left if you're sitting here now. You know that Jesus is coming. The rest is up to you. Um, finally, you know, if these children belong to Christ, and I propose they do, and since God designates them as His own, how should the church receive such children? How should we receive them if these are God's own children? Well, if you look at verse 15, you're going to see that the disciples had one approach. When they saw the parents bringing their children to solicit Jesus' blessing, they began rebuking those parents. You know, scram! Get those loud, nasty, diaper-filled babies out of here. Make them go away. Don't you know we're, we're sitting here, we're trying to learn from Jesus? Get those children out of here. And folks, that's the way many people today still treat young children. That, that they're an annoyance. That they're an impedance. That they're a disruption and a distraction to, to whatever it is we're trying to do here. But the children are exactly what we are trying to do here. They're what we're trying to do here. <laughs> Admittedly, they, they cry, they, they mess up, they... They spit up. Let's just admit it. Sometimes they're disgusting. (laughs) And Jesus says, you know, bring them all to me. And he embraces them and he hugs them. Bring them to me. You know, sometimes people ask me when there's crying or some distraction in the the back. Well, like someone getting up and going to the back right in the middle of the message. Um, (laughs) No, when, when a child starts crying and whining in the back, you know, do you get distracted by that? Do you get annoyed when a child starts crying during the service? You know, most, most of the time, I don't even notice. Most of the time, I do not notice. It does not bother me. Uh, if you're sitting behind them, maybe it does for a season. But, but even with those parents, you know that they're fighting to get them, get them calmed down in a minute or two. Uh, they're realizing that that child is being a distraction. They're trying to get them out to the vestibule probably as quickly as possible as well. We know they're not trying to be a distraction. We know they're not trying to upset our service. So we want them here. We want them here. Welcome back, Steve. Um, <laughs> that type of thing doesn't bother me at all. If a person has, It really doesn't. People get up and leave all the time. We just keep driving on. Um, we have a nursery, you know, for ones and twos back there. Uh, you know, but new visitors with brand new children, they might, might not be quite ready to hand those kids off to, to a place that they don't know anyone yet. So they'll bring them in here. That, that's great. Doesn't bother me at all. We want you here. From three to eight-year-olds, we have children's church where they can be dismissed uh, there. They, they take wonderful care of them back there. You know, about nine, about that age, you guys decide. We don't have strict limits on children's church, but at about nine, most children are able to sit through a service and listen uh, through the entire service. Here's the thing about these wonderful children. 
And I have truly, honestly, grown in affection much for children uh, just since my time here. They're just wonderful. And the more we have, the better. It, it is great. I'm sure that Gerald and Andrea will bless us somehow with that at some point. Um, but do you know what is far worse than having a bunch of screaming children in church? You know, don't you? Having none. Having none at all. And, and when a church has grown to the point or matured to the level where they're no longer welcoming to children... They no longer welcome the distraction of the cries. They want, you know, peace and quiet. No disruptions, please, during the service. At that point, a church is in its death throes. That's a dangerous time when people don't want kids around. And when you see a church that consists of, you know, all maturing people in their sunset with no young children around, you know, no young families around, you you can be pretty confident that church is on life support. It needs to change. Almost under any circumstance, almost I'll say, because there are unique circumstances in parts of the country, but almost under any circumstances, a church dies without children. It does. We're very blessed that they are here. Once you begin to turn away the next generation of these little ones who, who Jesus loved and took into his arms, you know, just, just go ahead and board up the doors at that point. You won't be around much longer. That's the next generation. That's the next generation. These little ones, they belong to Christ and the kingdom belongs to them. They're not only your prized possession, they're His. They're His. And our responsibility as a church is to prepare the next generation to meet Him when He comes. And since Scripture gives us confidence that they are under His watchful care, we can pray confidently Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. Sooner the better. The sooner the better. God help us. God help us. Let's pray.